In a day when so-called leaders reign with iron-fisted, command-and-controlled, top-down approaches, Utah's former governor says the fastest way to the top is bottom-up. Gary R. Herbert, who served 12 years as Utah's 17th governor, shares vital lessons and critical strategies from his season of service. Lessons on leadership everyone should learn on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Well, we're very pleased today to be joined by Utah's former governor now, Gary Herbert. Uh, governor, I'm still going to call you governor. I think that's a forever title. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Boyd. It's great to be with you and uh, talk to you and, and your audience. It's uh, been a, an exciting 30 years, six months, and five days for me as an elected official. But who's uh, counting, right? <laughs> yeah, and the last 12 years as the governor of the great state of Utah, which we're in a very good place as a state. I'm very pleased about and grateful for the opportunity I've had to serve. Yeah. Well, as you know, we love to talk about the lessons of leadership uh, on this program, and uh, you've been in a very unique uh, position. You've had uh, both a front row seat uh, and been on the playing field uh, for 30 years now uh, at various levels of government. And uh, give us just kind of a broad brush as you look back at those 30 years. Uh, what were some of those key leadership lessons for you? Well, when I first ran for office uh, as a county commissioner, I, I came away from that recognizing how significantly important it is to build bottom-up, not top-down. Uh, and that when I ran for governor, in fact, that was my slogan was bottom-up, not top-down. Others around the country I see are joining that. I certainly came away with an appreciation for local government, local control, close to the people, gives you the best policy outcomes. I've also come away with understanding how significantly important it is that we all participate. Uh, I know we all get discouraged for a variety of reasons, and it's like we want to take our vote and go home. Uh, and we should be, in fact, engaged even more so. And it shouldn't be just because we're angry. It should be because we believe in policy and policy by the people, for the people. You know, working together to build consensus of policies and laws and, and rules we have in place to guide society that we all think will give us the best outcome we can possibly have on behalf of the, of the community we represent. So being involved, uh, you know, we have to have good people run for office, but we have to have more people support those good people run for office. Uh, you know, voting should be a mandatory thing. I, I had an opportunity to get around the state, talk to a lot of young people, and I would challenge them on a number of things. But one of them was when you're 18 to register and to vote. And I would say that is your obligation, your opportunity that people have fought and died for. And when I was younger, I was 21 years of age, but with Vietnam War, uh, and I was at the tail end of that situation, we moved it to 18. And that's a good thing to do if you're old enough to fight and die. Uh, for your country, you ought to be able to vote for those who send you into harm's way. And so, uh, but we, they don't vote. They haven't been voting. And so we need to get people. I, I know that I sent, had my mother send me an absentee ballot when I was 21. I wasn't in the state. And I voted absentee. And I made myself a promise, particularly when I was in the military, 
and saw how important, you know, democracy and representative form of government really is, that I said, you know, I'm never going to miss voting. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud to tell you, Boyd, as at my senior age of 73, 74 in May, <laughs> I have never, ever missed voting. So I know it can be done. <laughs> it, 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 it's an attitude thing. It's probably a, a commitment. But I feel very good about it. Of all the things I've done in life, I've always voted primary and general elections mm-hmm. or special elections. I just don't miss voting. And we need to get that same kind of, I think, commitment from the rest of the population uh, to be civic invo- civically involved. If we all would do that, we'll probably elect better people and we'll elect uh, people that represent really the views of the masses and a consensus view. Mm. Last but not least, I would just add to that that, and we hear this from some of our religious organizations say to their con- uh, congregations, uh, go out and elect people that have good character, have integrity, uh, a work ethic. Um, that's more important than anything else. And, and whether that's Republican or Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, whatever label you want to put on your party, it should start with a foundation of integrity and good character and a work ethic to go out there and represent the people. And if we do that, we'll probably get good policy. If we don't do that, we have cracks in the foundation that later leads us to trouble. Uh, and we all have seen that happen in many in various ways over the last number of years and in the last generation or two or three. And so that's an important thing I think we tend to forget. Yeah. And um, so anyway, there's, there's a lot of things I've learned. That's just a... That's just a preface. I've got probably should write a book about, you know, all that I've learned, and maybe I will. Yeah, I, I think you should, I, and, and we'll help you do that. We can do it a little bit at a time. Uh, there you go. We're <laughs> we'll a chapter at a time here. <laughs> okay. uh, well, I want to drill down on a couple of things that you you mentioned there, Governor, because I, I think there are things that were both the hallmarks of your leadership uh, and also things that I think are important uh, for the state and for the nation uh you you've talked about this bottom up approach to thing uh really a, a federalism approach to things and uh, of course you saw that as a as a county commissioner as governor as governor you found yourself kind of in the the middle of those two forms of federalism of the state being able to push things down uh, to the the local level and you also stood in the breach uh with a federal government uh, often overreaching but but talk to us about your perspective in terms of where we've come in terms of federalism and how important is that both for the state and for the country moving forward? Uh, what's the old Pogo statement about we've confronted the enemy and the enemy is us? <laughs> I think we as a society and the citizens of this great country have over time have looked for solutions to everything that ails our society and think that somehow the solution comes out of Washington, D.C., and frankly, that's just backwards. Uh, the solutions come from us as individuals and families. Most of them can be addressed at our local levels with our mayors and count, uh, city councilmen in the cities, our county commissioners and county councils at the county level, and certainly our state legislators and the governor of the state. I've really come to believe that the greatest hope that we have for America's future is not in Washington, D.C., but the greatest hope is from the states themselves. Sovereign states, 50 different laboratories of democracy, all going through experiments of pilot programs and 
We learn from those that are succeeding, and we learn from those that fail. And we make adjustments and modifications and improve policy and consequently improve outcome. So the best hope going forward for America is the states, and that's where we should concentrate our time. Uh, I think it's a false hope to think that the federal government will solve our problems, and it's becoming very expensive to even try. As you probably know, I think our our national debt is nearly $28 trillion. We will have spent $4 trillion more money than we took in this past year, we only take in about four trillion, and we're going to spend, you know, twice what we what we've taken in. And that's a debt that is just staggering. And if, if you don't believe me, look up the definition. How much is a trillion? Yeah, you know, that's a thousand billion. You know, and and think what you can do with a thousand of anything. It's just some of the examples are staggering, and we all should be concerned about the mounting debt. So for me, the concept of federalism allows us to be more effective and efficient in how government works. I'm proud of Utah. We've we've done some really remarkable things in saying, what can we do better? We are a monopoly. We know that. The first thing that every state, every government official out there recognizes, we're a monopoly. We have no competition. And whether we do it good, bad, or indifferently, we're still going to be there tomorrow. A company of business, private business, will be bankrupt. They'll be out of business. So uh, with this monopoly, we ought to have an urgency to say, what can we do to push the envelope on efficiency? And the private sector happens because of competition. If you don't find better ways to do things, you'll lose market share, move profitability, and pretty soon you're going to lose your business. So I'm proud of what we did in Utah under our watch in that we've reduced the number of employees uh, so that we have a smaller number today than we had back in 2002. No, that's 18, 19 years ago. And yet we have about eight or 900,000 more people in that time that call Utah home. So providing more services to more people with less personnel, government's labor intensive, means that we're finding better ways to do things more effectively and efficiently. By the way, that's saving the people of Utah uh, probably on an annual basis now about three to four hundred million dollars per year. Mm. So there's money involved with it. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're one of nine states that has a AAA bond rating. Only nine states. I mean, right. that, that ought to give us all pause. What's happened to the other 41 states? Yeah, and of course the federal government. Don't, but we just—they haven't got even a hope and a prayer. And uh, so our kids, our grandkids, our great grandchildren are all going to have to bite the bullet sometime because this is going to come back and haunt us sometime yeah. in the future, and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. Yeah. So, big- those are all about federalism. You know, there's yeah. different aspects of it. Um, let's quit asking so much from the federal government and more for the states. Uh, I, I've always liked, and you probably have read this, boy, you probably know it by heart, but Federalist 45, James Madison, father of our Constitution, and talking about the worry that he had about the role of government and the federal government becoming too powerful to overpower the state government. Right. And Ronald Reagan famously declared, and others, you know, it was the states created the federal government, not the other way around. Yeah. And and so, uh, as, as James Madison said, the powers we've given to the federal government are few and defined. Mm-hmm. Few and defined. Uh, the enabling legislation we have in the Article uh, Section 8 of our Constitution tells what the powers of the federal government are. They're enumerated. Uh, and then he said the powers given to the states 
are numerous and indefinite. Yeah. Numerous and indefinite. And we somehow have got this thing backwards, and I'm sure James Madison's rolling over his grave saying, I left instructions. I told them what to do. <laughs> They've got away from it here. So we need to get back to where the founding fathers thought the state's role was superior, certainly co-equal with the federal government. And right now we tend to be a junior partner to the federal mm-hmm. government, which is not healthy for our future. Yeah. So all those things about federalism, again, part of the things we're going to do with our center down at Utah Valley University, the Herbert Institute on Public Policy, as laboratories of democracy, Judge Brian Dice famously said years ago, and these pilot programs, we're all trying experimenting, and we learn from each other and improve. It's a wonderful system for let it work. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk for just a minute about uh, the institute down at uh, Utah Valley University. Uh, that's a it's a expanding campus, a large uh, and very diverse uh, set of students down there at UVU. Tell us a little bit about the center. I know it's early days in the, in your process there, but give us a little insight into what's coming. Well, I was a, I'm very appreciative. Matt Holland, when he was president there, said, you know, when you're all done, we ought to see if we can't carve out a place for you here at Utah Valley University. He knew my history. I actually went to school when I was back in the trade tech days between my sophomore and junior years in high school. I learned to be a draftsman and a skill that was very uh, helpful. Helped me when I was in the army. I came, uh, I was in infantry and did a surveyor. I was a surveyor for target acquisition. And so they all fit kind of hand in hand. And when I started my own real estate company and development company, in my adult years, those skills came in handy. My father was a builder, and I would design plans and, and, and draft them up, and then he would build them, and then I'd sell them. Mm-hmm. And so I have a, a great affection for what I learned in those uh, summer school one year that I went to the school. I've been on their foundation board. I helped them become from a trade tech to a, a community college. I helped bring in the event center and there when I was a county commissioner, worked to bring in our first four-year degrees, helped them become a university, uh, helped them bring in uh, build their ballpark there, which brought in the Oramile. So my fingerprints are, are pretty much all over there. And then I taught for seven years at Utah Valley, and it was a community college there in, in their evening school for seven years. I actually enjoyed doing that. Maybe that's part of the hope, maybe uh, – with this new institute is I'll maybe become an adjunct professor and teach a few things about my experiences over the last 30 years. Um, I think there's a need to have, by the way, in our universities, making sure that there's at least balance in our approach to what public policy is. I think there's a concern out there for anybody who kind of looks at the numbers and, and we find that that academia, you know, 85% of the time is voting for the left side of the, of the uh, uh, political aisle, and that might be just a little bit out of balance. And, and uh, that probably is reflected in their instruction. So uh, particularly when it comes to economics, I'm very concerned that we have so many of our young people embracing socialism, following Bernie Sanders. Uh, I, I've been a little surprised about the Democrat Party, frankly. Why would you let somebody who's never been a Democrat in his life, has been an avowed socialist, uh, allow him to try to carry the baton for the Democratic Party. You know, on the Republican side, why would we want any libertarians to come in and carry the baton for Republicans? They've got their own parties. If they are so well-received, then they ought to run on their own platform and their own uh, philosophy. Uh, that being said, uh, I'm, you know, free market capitalism, which has almost become 
uh, a phrase you can't even use without somebody giving you scorn uh, is because we don't understand that that's the, that's the ism that's raised more people out of poverty than any other economic system in the history of the world. It gives people opportunities to be the best they can be. There is no ceiling on free market capitalism. And the opportunity of, of helping people is still there. The private sector is certainly a part of that, by the way. And we see those successful entrepreneurs. Virtually every one of them makes a ton of money, gives it back in some form or fashion, over and above taxes. Yeah. You know, they're very generous. So um, I, I appreciate that in Utah we haven't forgot that concept. In fact, we've, we've uh, kind of promoted that. And guess what? We've led the nation in lifting people out of poverty. Right, right now we're number two lowest poverty rate in America. Uh, we've become the epicenter for small business. And guess what? You can't be a large business if you're not a small business first. So the basic fundamental aspects of free market capitalism, which, by the way, is a test question. If you go to become a naturalized citizen, the question is, what kind of economic system does America live under? It isn't communism. It isn't socialism. It's free market capitalism. Yeah. That's the correct answer. And there must be a reason for that. <laughs> so we ought to start making sure we promote that. And people understand it. So the history of our state, history of our Constitution, civic involvement, internships, lecture series, Understanding free market capitalism. We'll work with the constitutional studies people and the, and the political science departments down there. And we'll be a little niche there that I think can help leaven the loaf a bit is what I would hope to have. Wonderful. That's, that's exciting. And we'll, uh, we'll have you back for a deeper dive on that one as, uh, as we go along. But that's, uh, that, those are crucial principles and uh, a crucial uh, institution going in play there. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit now, uh, Governor. I want to I want to get to some of these uh, lessons learned. Uh, it's often said that uh, leadership can be a, a lonely thing, uh, and while you surround yourself with good people and uh, lieutenant governors and the legislature and key staffers from you know your communications team to your chief of staff, uh, you've had great people uh, all around you. Uh, and yet, even in the midst of all of that, uh, there are times where the uh, the load falls to the leader. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your process maybe some some moments in your leadership where it really uh you really kind of had to to go at it and sit in your office and and think it through or or carry that load well you know the, the interesting thing about being governor is that every day is an adventure it's not the same old same old there's just so many different variety of issues coming to your desk and and whether it's a statewide issue or a regional concern, you know, and so it actually makes the day very interesting. And you're right, I've been blessed to have just very good, capable, smart people around me. They've been willing to come and go to work, many of them taking cuts and pay from the private sector to give a little service to the state. Not everybody wants to be an elected official and go through that grinder, but there's a lot of people who want to give back to their community and their state and serve. And so... Uh, those are opportunities we ought to provide for people and look for good people, uh, in fact, to do that. Uh, someday I'll have to talk to you about should our, in fact, our other statewide constitutional officers like attorney general, treasurer, auditor, should those be elected to positions or should they be appointed by the governor? Just like we do in the federal government, they appoint those cabinet level officers. And I know I think you can get some really capable, good, qualified people that sometimes you don't get quite as good because uh, people don't want to have to run for office. And when you said it, it made me think about, you know, I've appointed about 106 judges. Uh, and uh, 
the most by far of any governor, governor in history of Utah. Uh, probably three quarters of all the judges on the bench now are mine. And I feel very good about that, by the way. Uh, in fact, other states uh, envy what we've done, how we've done it. Our own legal profession here in Utah feel very good. We've been very willing to entertain anybody's recommendation, but we've always tried to pick the best possible people for the bench, and I've done so. But one of the questions I've asked them was, how do you make your decisions? Yeah. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, but what I do care about is how are you going to make your decisions? And, of course, the right answer, the simplified answer is, I'm going to apply the facts of the case to the law and determine an outcome based on the law and the facts that apply to that. As opposed to saying, well, we think the law should be changed, modified, or we're close enough, or move in that direction, so I'm going to close the loop and, and make some activism. And again, I can tell you, we have those on the right that say that and equity all the time, and, and unless it's a, a, a activism on the right. Well, that's just as wrong as activism on the left. And so uh, how you make your decisions is really critical. That, and, and you gave me a flashback when you asked me that question. And uh, again, I have good people that I vet it with. I look at the background, the history, and the pros and the cons on any issue get input from people that I trust and have reverence for. And then sometimes like Abraham Lincoln, who said sometimes uh, the only place I can go to get help is on my knees. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a spiritual element, at least for me as a, uh, a man of faith, to help guide and direct me in how I think I should act and what the decision will would be, not just for the short term, but for the long term. And it's certainly very easy for us in politics and elected office to say, well, gee, what's the short term here? Uh, because that includes the next time I'm up for re- election. Now, I don't want to you know, cause any problems there. Uh, and so it's just easy to look at the next election, as they say, instead of the next generation. And so, I, again, I think uh, uh, getting advice and counsel, looking for a little spiritual guidance, helps us look at the long term better than we'd otherwise have it. And uh, I certainly made my share of mistakes. I think by and large we made good decisions. Uh, uh, you know, as I've said, the, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, or by their fruits you shall know them. You know, when we look at Utah in the last decade that Kim Gardner instituted says the best decade in Utah's history. And so we must have done something right there. But when you think of all the issues that are out there, whether it be the environment, the economy, education, health care, infrastructure, uh, the planning for the future with Envision Utah. Uh, we've made very positive, significant strides forward. In fact, the economy has been the best in America. Uh, our educational achievement has gone from middle of the pack to top ten with our NAEP scores. And Newsweek magazine said we're the second best education system in America, second only to Massachusetts. Our infrastructure, not only are we still building roads for the accommodate the growth pressures, which we have, which are, are significant, but we're now maintaining the roads we're building. We're putting enough money in there to do that. Uh, uh, you know, our, our environmental issues, we've reduced pollution uh, by over 30% in the last decade. And uh, we're now in attainment, you know, uh, for the first time in, I don't know, 15 years in the state of Utah on air quality issues. Uh, we still have a problem with ozone, which is kind of a phenomenon out in the Uinta Basin. But um, our, our, you know, our and overall in the country, our environment's improved dramatically. 
uh, and, and Utah is no exception. In fact, we're probably one of the leaders in getting it done right. So pick an issue. It's hard to find an issue that we're not making strides in improvement. And on those that you measure, on the positive side, we're probably, if we're not number one, like we're, we're number two right now in the Forbes Best for Businesses uh, state, but we've been six out of the nine years number one. Uh, that's a pretty dang good record, you know. And uh, so our education, I feel very good about what's happening there. We put record amounts of money into it. We had a record amount on the table and then the COVID hit, which slowed down, but uh, they're trying to make that up again this, this legislative session. Uh, morale's up uh, in education. We have more collaboration. I, I took the idea and said, you know what, uh, for, for the, uh, Democrat side, they, they really care about education. For the Republican side, they care about the economy. Guess what? <laughs> Those two are partners. Uh, we have to have skills in the labor force that align up with the demands of the marketplace. That's improved education, uh, expanded opportunities of choice. And if we do that, we're going to have the labor force that business is going to say, not only do I want to be in Utah, it'd be nice, but I need to be in Utah because that's where the labor force is that has the skills we need. And particularly if we want to be international, they speak 130 languages in Utah. What a great place to have, have our headquarters or at least an appendage of our company if we want to improve market share and, and bottom line profitability. So. Uh, we've done very well, and that's because of the help of so many people working together. Uh, I, I've had an approach which I think works uh, for me. I think it works for others too. But you know, we're not all the same personality-wise. But I'm I am right-wing conservative. I'm a right-of-center conservative. I'm probably as conservative as any governor we've ever had in my lifetime. That's my own personal philosophy. Uh, and I believe that gives us the better outcomes. People on the left will argue, well, our way gives a better outcome for society. Well, that's the debate. Uh, sometimes we have the same goals. We just how we get there is where we differentiate ourselves between Republican and, and, and Democrat. But I'm I'm I, I'm proud of that. And but I'm moderate in tone. I don't think you convince anybody by yelling at them or calling them names. It doesn't help the matter to get things done. So I'm moderate in tone, and I'm inclusive in process. I'll sit down with anybody and say, let us reason together, saith Isaiah, and let's see if we can't figure out a way to solve the problem. And, you know, compromise, as opposed to some of the extreme rhetoric here out there, is not a dirty word. Yeah. Our founding fathers, in fact, came up with the best document ever created by men in the history of the world, or how we can govern and associate ourselves as a society called the Constitution, and they compromised to get it. So I'm glad we didn't have just zealots that said, no, it's my way or the highway, that they were willing to find common ground and work together and come up with a solution and get things done. And it can be amended and modified. That's part of the beauty of the Constitution. So um, uh, that's what we've done, how we've made decisions, and I think it's worked very well to get people to engage, come to the table, and we reason together, and we come up with a solution and develop that into a policy and move forward. And Utah has done very well. Like I say, Kim Garner says the best decade in Utah's history, and that's part of the reason why. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Uh, so, so I want to ask you now, Governor, as you've gone through uh, this process and as you've had uh, at least a few weeks to reflect, um, were there some moments that – that just surprised you where you kind of had a moment of, wow, I wasn't ready for this or 
this was not in the fine print when I uh, <laughs> signed up for to, to run for this office, uh, or even some lessons that you maybe learned about yourself that were surprising uh, as you've gone through this leadership odyssey. Well, I probably have to go through and think through all those different aspects, but uh, one, I can tell you, it, it goes without saying, it's been an honor to serve. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the 17th governor. I mean, there's only been 17 governors of Utah. Yeah. We've had territorial governors, of course, starting with Brigham Young, but uh, it's a pretty select, unique group of people, and I'm I'm humbled that I'm one of them. And if I was going to write a book it would, uh, about that journey, I'd say Gary Herbert, Improbable Journey. It is improbable, and if you know my background and all the history behind it, uh, I'm sure that nobody would have said, hey, I'll bet you Gary Herbert grows up to become governor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would have been the longest of long shots. But here I am, and, and uh, other than Kyle Rampton, longest-serving governor in Utah history, and actually, if you add in my lieutenant governor experience, nobody served longer in the executive branch than me. So it was a very improbable journey, and uh, I'm honored and humbled about that opportunity. I've learned you can't please everybody. You know, I think there's always a desire to make everybody happy. And you try to find consensus, and you try to, to do the right thing for the people. But, uh, you know, there's nothing, not a thing that I've done that I have not felt good about at the time, uh, voting my conscience, directing policy and traffic in the way I thought it should go with the help of others. But we, you don't always get it right. There's some bills I probably should have vetoed. There's some other bills I probably should have vetoed or should have been stronger in, in, in my position. Um, you know, I've, I've prided myself in working closely with the legislature. Some governors pride themselves on having the most number of vetoes. I've vetoed 50 bills this year. I've been in meetings where they raised their hand and bragged about it. I vetoed six. Nobody ever vetoed as many bills as me. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to veto bills. I want to get good policy. So why don't we work with the legislature to see if we can't come up with good policy that I don't have to veto, that we can help shape and get the right policy in place and, uh, you know, not have to have a pound of correction uh, or of the cure for a problem we helped create. So I just think that was more wise and a smart way to approach things. And it worked for us. We did it well and and got some really good outcomes. Um, I, you know, I've been a little surprised about some of the pushback on some of the things that I thought were so commonsensible. Um this COVID has really kind of opened my eyes a little bit to some of the uniqueness of the of the community out there at large. Uh, I've been surprised that so many, and I, they may be so few, but are loud, yeah. that uh, have embraced that well, there's a conspiracy out there. This is all a put-up deal. There is no such thing as COVID-19. Uh, and, you know, the idea of wearing a mask is a health uh, you know, uh, uh, help saying to help us spread, uh, help us contain the spread, help us not get sick ourselves in spite of the science that now has come to the forefront over the number of months saying absolutely. And we see now the results not only of COVID slowing down and with the help of vaccine now and, and a mask and social distancing and washing your hands, but we've seen a dramatic reduction in cold and flu. <laughs> what do you think? Why are we surprised? You know, we don't yeah. spread germs. 
And we, we keep our face covered with these masks. I know it's a little inconvenient. We wash our hands. And it's like, oh, wow, can you believe this? Our flu numbers are way down. Our colds are way down. Well, that's the benefit of those kinds of hygiene aspects, protocols. But I've been surprised at some of the vitriol that's come out about that. Uh, and maybe it's people understand emergency powers and why there's a need to do that. And, and uh, some, I've heard some people say, I don't want the government telling me what to do. Okay, why don't you just do it? <laughs> because it's the right thing to do. And then government doesn't need to tell you what to do. The government does have a responsibility to help protect the health and welfare of the people that it represents. And so uh, there is a responsibility for government to act, particularly when people won't act in their own best interest. And that's a fine line, and I understand the debate, but to have people protesting in front of our private homes and private residences, packing, you know, military operational guns, AK-47 type sidearms, you think, what's that about? You're going to some neighborhood, trying to scare the people. You're expecting somebody's going to shoot at you and you've got to shoot back. It's really a design to kind of create an intimidation factor and, and all. And so that's been a little bit of a surprise to me. The rioting we had, the unrest we saw this past year for the first time in our history in downtown Salt Lake. Um, that was, a, that caught me a little bit off guard. I was a little surprised about that. That's not our culture. So you learn as you go, and you see where mistakes have been made, and you hope that you improve and move forward and, and have a better day tomorrow. But I'm sure we all have learned a lot of lessons this past year, yeah. <laughs> and, and certainly I have over the last 12 years. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Therefore, what? Well, Governor, we're coming down the home stretch of our uh, our time. Uh, this, we're going to have to turn this into a series because uh, I have a, a boatload of other questions uh, I want to get at. Uh, but let's let's round out uh, today's conversation. Uh, I got up early this morning and uh, just thinking through this conversation that we're going to have, uh, went back and, and reread uh, George Washington's farewell address to the nation. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we, we call this program Therefore What? So usually the final question is a therefore what? But uh, I'm going to modify that for you uh, and say if you were delivering that farewell uh not just to the state, but to the nation in terms of some of these lessons learned. Uh, what would that message be today as you look back on uh, an incredible 30 years and look forward uh, to more contributions, more interaction, more influence uh, ahead? Uh, what's what's the message for the people today? Well, I would hope that we're all optimistic about the future. I know with the election and the controversy we've had and, and whoever thought we'd have our own people, uh, you know, rushing the Capitol and breaking down doors and windows and yelling such uh, despicable things as let's hang, you know, and uh, create a gallows and just all the things that were just almost incomprehensible. Uh, but as we go forward, one, let's be grateful for all the blessings of the past. You know, in spite of the challenges that we have today, uh, America still rises above all the nations as that beacon on the hill. Uh, and uh, it is, as Abraham Lincoln said, the best hope of the earth is, in fact, America. We, we really are that bastion of freedom and liberty and success. And, and, you know, we air our dirty laundry. We're pretty transparent about it. And whether people, you know, poke at us and, and say, look, America, the mighty has fallen. You know, well, 
we're st- we're not perfect and we do make mistakes, but we learn from them and we move forward. And we're still the greatest place on on the, on the earth, and people still want to come here. That's part of our immigration problem, which is another issue that I talk about sometime. But people come here not for guarantees; they come here for opportunity to be the best they can be in a free society. And, and that's something we ought not to forget. And so if that is the function and basis for why we have America, and why it's so beloved around the world, is for what we stand for. Um, and this democratic republic that functions very well in spite of our faults and frailties as humankind, we need to, in fact, find ways to work together. Uh, it, the divisiveness that we have now is not healthy. And we need to find ways to come together, find common ground, work together. Uh, we all, as Republicans, look back to the glory days of Reagan Republicanism when Ronald Reagan said, if you agree with me 80% of the time, you're my friend. <laughs> now it's like, well, we'll give you maybe 1%. You know, one out of 100, if you're wrong, well, let that pass. But two, you know, throw the bum out. You know, and we're just a little bit too pure. And uh, frankly, uh, Purity is not going to help us, uh, but unity will help us as a country and our respective parties. So I hope we can find ways to, to come together and set aside some of the extremes. I'll let that dictate to us what we do and, and come together. And I think that will help us. As Abraham Lincoln said, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. And, and we're kind of at that place in life, or in our politics at least, in our communities, that we're pretty divided. So my hope for the future is not only we look more to the states for a solution to problems uh, and not so much the federal government, but we find ways to work together. Uh, again, uh, bottom up, and that starts with our families. And so making sure our families are intact, our families are healthy, and they come in a wide variety of forms. Uh, but raising our children, I appreciate the First Lady's initiative, which is on parenting. If we can train our children, as the scriptures say, train our children the way you should go, and it should not fall from it. Um, we, we need to have our children to be taught good principles on freedom and liberty and the proper role of government and the opportunity we have to have self-initiative and be the best you can be in a free society. Those are things that need to be taught and learned and practiced. And if we do those things, you know, our future is very bright. Very, I'm very hopeful and very optimistic. And we should also, the last point I'll make here, and there's probably a lot we could, maybe there's another book for us, Boyd. But uh, the last point is, we should be grateful we live in Utah. Uh, I'm a proud American. I'm a proud, proud American for what America stands for. But I'm grateful to be in Utah. It is a great state with great people. Uh, When you get past, you know, the policies that the legislature puts together and the executive branch, does and all the government aspect. When you think about the fact that this state leads the nation in volunteerism, helping your neighbor, we see it in action. We've had some of these storms and fires and the earthquakes and how the rush of people to come to help their neighbor. We lead the nation in volunteerism. We lead the nation in charitable giving. That's actually giving money, not just your time, but your resources too. That combination. We, we lead the nation by Gallup polling of being the most optimistic people, the most joyful people, the most happy people. And we're in the top five and the healthiest people. Uh, we we have, live in a great state. Beautiful vistas and venues, sceneries, people, caring about people, their neighbors, even those they don't know. 
So um, we are a good example to the rest of the country. And one of the things that I was really kind of pleased about was that I would constantly get calls from other governors saying, how do you guys do this in Utah? You're doing so well on this issue and that issue. And what's your secret? Well, the secret is we have really, really good people. It really is that more than anything else. And so that culture that we've developed here is helping us to be kind of the beacon on the hill for the rest of the country. I want to be like Utah. And I've had more than one governor ever say that to me. Many governors said, I want to be like, I want to be successful as Utah. So anyway, we should be grateful for the success we've had, but I am grateful for the people of Utah that made it happen. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?